you ready? I'm ready. Let's do this. Welcome to The Loyalist Connections. Established 1783. Well, you tuned in again. <laughs> you came back. <laughs> so today on the Loyalist Connections podcast, we're going to talk about Whitney Pier, Nova Scotia. Whitney Pier is located in Sydney, Nova Scotia, roughly four and a half hours away from Halifax. If you're driving from Yarmouth to Sydney, it's roughly eight hours. Some people might say 10. I drive fast, so eight hours. The pier runs along the eastern shore of the Sydney Harbour. One of the most interesting things for me is the central gathering spots. Yes. How was religion and the church uh, intertwined in the community? Absolutely. I'm like, Baptist was big. Like We know that from a lot of the other communities, but was there anything else? Could have been. I heard there was an African Orthodox church in the area. I guess it's still standing to this day. And then the black families, where they were, where they went, and why. That's right. Yeah, and this is the thing, again, the reoccurring theme, the intermigration from yeah. that area. Where did they go specifically? From what my understanding, there's also there was also black communities in North Sydney, mm-hmm. Glace Bay, as well as New Waterford, and not just in Whitney Pier. So uh, it would be interesting to shed some light on some of those other communities as well. Well, in the composition, like were they part of the Caribbean wave or were they part of the black loyalist migration That's or intermigration? I I don't have the answer. Oh, I know. But maybe our uh, special guest will. And now to introduce our special guest for this episode, Bradley Shepard, who was born and raised in Whitney Pier and still calls the Pier his home. Hey, Bradley. Thanks for coming out. Let's talk about how you're connected to Whitney Pier. Sure, fellas. Thanks for having me. Um, You know, it's a pleasure to be here and to learn from you folks. So I was born and raised in Whitney Pier. Um, my father's from Whitney Pier. Uh, his ancestry is Bayesian, and my mother's actually from Waikagama, which is a small community um, located in Cape Breton on the shores of the Bador Lakes. So um, my history basically starts, you know, being born here, but it goes a lot deeper than that. Um, as you probably know, a lot of um, a lot of Black people came to Whitney Pier at the the start of the steel plant. Okay, and the steel plant was was basically the economic engine of the community okay and so Whitney Pier itself is located on the shores of the harbor of the Sydney Harbor sorry and at one point you had a large contingent of um, you know people from all over the world uh, come to Whitney Pier and so my folks or or sorry my family came from um, Barbados but before that there was a large influx of American blacks that were brought up to help stand up the steel plant but what had happened was um, they weren't necessarily welcomed here in uh, in Sydney and Cape Breton and we're talking late 1800s early 1900s but they stuck it out you know you you had the Bayesian community here in Whitney Pier and then you had an influx come from the mainland namely Guysborough County and and they made made it home. It's interesting because we talk about the discrepancy between work, and this is a consistent pattern that we see in all of the local com, uh, historical communities. We saw that in the first Birchtown 
uh, episode, which is really interesting. Bar- that Barbados connection continues to come up with Nova Scotia here. Um, we yeah. st- saw that with Stephen Bluke, and we saw that also with Beachville as well. Too is that that's right, Larice? Right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's really interesting to hear that. One thing you mentioned about um, not being well received in that sense when they first arrived. What what was that like for them? I think it was just a sign of the times, even though we're still seeing it today. You know, systemic racism, inequality, and misunderstanding runs deep. And at that time, it wasn't hidden. You know, it was very, very forthcoming and outright. Um, and so a lot of people that came here at the time, yes, they worked um, lower level jobs, but they also created a sense of community uh, within community, if that makes sense. Because, you know, there were so many different ethnic groups um, and they were kind of setting up shop or, you know, um, deepening their roots in the community. We had to do the same thing because uh, we weren't allowed to pray uh, at certain churches or um congregate at certain churches or, or, or have social events at certain halls. So what the community did, in, or the black community, sorry, Whitney Pierre, what, what they did is they set up their own. Um, so the African Orthodox Church, for example, in Whitney Pierre was a place for people, uh, black people to, to pray and congregate. Um, the United Negro Improvement Association, which is out in Glace Bay, um, you know, it's, it's under the Garveyism, the Marcus Garvey model. And if you're familiar with the song Redemption Song, um, you know, Bob Marley took lyrics from um, Marcus Garvey's speech that he made in Glace Bay at the UNIA. You mentioned that these workers that came in, the the blacks from the U.S., the blacks from, you know, the the Caribbean, Barbados, uh, they came in and they, you know, contributed to building, you know, this this facility in in, in town and, and work in a meaningful way. Uh, when they came here, what was the ownership situation like back then? Like you see in many communities, sometimes we didn't have a ton of control. Like if you look at um, the rocky lands of, of the Preston area, or mm-hmm. if, even if you look at the reservation systems throughout uh, Nova Scotia and in Canada, you know, sometimes the land wasn't the most desirable. And so in Whitney Pier in particular, um, you know, we did own parcels of land, but we also were part of the company, i.e. company houses, right? Uh. And so um, you had a split of both. Um, and I do know, for example, to this day, there's still plots of land in the pier that have um, names of families that are that are are no longer here. You know what I'm saying? So um, or vote migrated. We'll say that. And so I think there was a there was a split. You know, you had ownership. You had um, you had people that lived on company company land in company homes, and even when you drive through um, the pier in Sydney today, there's still a remnants of these these homes. They still exist. One of the things that you mentioned too that uh, was a theme that I think we've been seeing in a couple of the uh, our, our, our last discussions was you know the fact that some of these workers were extremely skilled. Yeah, hundred percent. Like, if you look back, if you if you're in the middle 1800s, of course we were skilled. We were laborers. We're you know slaves. We, you know, I always laugh because we made the the best out of nothing. You look at the most popular foods now. You know, collard greens, chitlins. You know, um, (laughs) different things. We were given the the shittiest food, uh, but we made it the best. So we we're used to that, right? And so it was no different taking that skill set from the plantation into other labor. 
jobs, I guess we'll call it. And, and, you know, making steel was one of them. Yeah. And we talked about the resourcefulness, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and I keep saying this, we have to remember that these conditions that they were, you know, they were coming from, let's say slavery into these other conditions, which weren't far removed in that sense. Mm -hmm. So the stress, the environment to be able to be resourceful and, you know, bring your skill set and still contribute and do your job well, because let's, let's be honest here. If we start talking about the relationship between Dominion Iron and Steel Company, I mean, without the influx of uh, immigrants, it would have failed. And if you look, if you look at any institution in North America, you know, in, in modern history, it could have failed without, without us, you look at Citadel Hill in Halifax, you know, you look at, you look at many cities uh, in the United States where we were instrumental in standing that up and, and, you know, quote unquote, on our backs, you know what I'm trying to say? So that resilience to me is innate in black people. And I think that's why we succeed in the face of adversity because absolutely We're so used to carrying that heavy load. In whatever capacity that is, that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So one of the other questions, uh, you know, we talked about the property land, but how was the community defined back then? Um, You know, the closeness, um, the interaction with, uh, you know, kind of day-to-day life. How was it defined specifically? You know, in talking to elders in the community, I would say that... um, resilience would probably be one of the words I hear the most, um, you know, taking lemons and making lemonade, so to speak, Uh Um, you know, low wage jobs, kind of packed on two to three streets in the community. Um, And that's another thing about Whitney Pier, because it was so diverse, there was actually, quote unquote, lines drawn in the community. So the black community, Whitney Pier, lived on the first three streets next to the steel plant right so they had you know access to work or easy way to get to work um but the people in those communities like you know within those three streets you had you know a hotel you had uh grocery stores you had butchers you had uh restaurants you had corner stores you know you didn't have to go anywhere um bars you know you didn't have to go anywhere to to kind of get a slice of life right and that to me was everything and that demonstrates resilience in the face of adversity you know um coming here setting up shop and and to a degree keeping to themselves simply Mm -hmm. because at that time that's what factions did i don't call them factions but social groups they stayed within their own right yeah it was Um, siloed it was siloed correct so therefore it's like segregation uh What, it, was it public? Like, was it like known? Like, this is where, this is where the blacks are. You know, don't go there. Or, oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I, I, I'm laughing at the don't go there, but yeah, it was one hundred percent. So, and this is the this is the the beauty of the pier. We were a cultural mosaic, right? You had all these different mm-hmm. groups, but the lines were clearly drawn, right? Right. Yes. But when you leave the pier. Yep. You're from the pier. So you had people, white people, black people, um, you know, once you leave the pier, because you're from the pier, people will, uh, people respected that. You know what I'm saying? Wow. Well, you were talking about as well, too, there is the entrepreneurial background, right? You know, to be, again, back to the resourcefulness kind of topic, you know, you're, you're, you're providing for your community in that sense by creating these restaurants, shops, and things of that nature, something that mm-hmm. you can keep community-based and call your own So. Th- so to speak. And I think that's very powerful. And what we see in all these historical communities is that 
common trend of community as well too mm-hmm. and trying to give back to your community as well so you don't have to go outside and run into the, some of those issues outside of your community that you would being born like and raised in you know the Whitney Pier area uh like have you have you like left and then came back or at your like career your education everything has been based in you know the Cape Breton you know Sydney area that's a good question. Um, so I never left the pier. Um, and I don't mean to sound like I'm closed minded. No, uh, I, I did a lot of traveling um, with the military. So I just retired from the military after 20 years of service. And, and luckily, I was able to, to learn a lot um, and travel a lot. And I find uh, through travel comes perspective. Mm-hmm. Right? Absolutely. Um, so and true. so and so for me, like I knew, you know, everywhere I went, it was great loved it but there was always that little voice in my head calling me back right because i always felt like if i wanted to affect change i'd rather do it in my own community right absolutely so given that perspective that you gained from uh you know traveling with the military uh and being back home like how would you uh describe growing up like in the pier with the new perspective from you know the world that you gained oh man growing up in the pier was the bomb (laughs) <laughs> it was excellent, man. No, I'm serious. And I'll tell you why, because, um, you know, so I was born in 83. So, you know, my parents had me fairly young. Um, I had two siblings and we grew up in a low income neighborhood. And so there was always love. My parents, you know, we didn't have much money. You know, we didn't have a fancy house. We had no mm-hmm. car, but man, we had a lot of love. Mm-hmm. And what made it really special was the extended family. Right. So um, aunts, great aunts, great uncles, cousins barbecues, cookouts, Sunday chicken and rice, you know, all these traditions that we had growing up. And, and you know, the chicken and rice is, is a Bayesian thing, right? That was brought up um, from Barbados. But just having that sense of community, um, social safety net, you know, if you were out too late and someone saw you, they're calling mom and dad and you get, you're getting your butt whooped when you got home kind of thing. Um, <laughs> just the little things, man, the little things made it great. So my follow-up to that is, now, you know, times has changed, right? Like, it, and given the change in time from when we were growing up to like mm-hmm. present day, like, has that sense of community for you changed? Or are those aunts and uncles and, you know, extended family still there to maintain that, you know, sense of community with the, 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 the rice and chicken on Sundays, you know? <laughs> well, I think, you know, as time passes, people pass, right? Okay. Traditions pass. Um and so to answer your question, it's still the, the, that that part of like the Sunday dinners is still a vibrant thing. Um, okay. And I should probably backtrack just a little bit. So when the Bayesians came up, they brought with them their culture, their food. Um, and so what had happened in our community, and my father tells me these stories. He said, Bradley, when I was a kid, he's like, you could go to the neighbor's <laughs> house with a bowl and $2 and then fill it up with rice, pigtail, and sauce. You know, all, mm. all these Bayesian dishes. And so I'm there. Yeah, <laughs> pigtail. So, say no pigtail. more. Yeah, man. I'm there. <laughs> and so, my, my old man actually, and I'm very, very grateful for him in this respect, is he made chicken and rice every Sunday for us, and he he could cook, man. And so, growing up every Sunday, waking up and smelling that coming through the house, it was like, yeah, boy. And so, as time passes, right? Um, oat migration's a big thing. You know, a lot of mm-hmm. people my age now live in, you know, Airdrie or Fort St. John or, or, or somewhere, right? They don't live here. And so what happens is you're seeing a thin out 
Um, so i.e. babies being born out west, for example, um, and babies not being born here. And so um, you're seeing, uh, so you, you have out migration, you have a population decline, and then you're seeing more interracial marriages, right? Yep. And so my wife's black, but she's very fair. So my kids are fair, you know, a lot lighter than my sister and I. And so, and you see this in, in multiple communities, you know, as time goes on, um, you know, things change, people change. And so I would say that the populations definitely declined, but there's still a strong element of culture in Whitney Pier. So one of the things you just described was that oat migration to go to major industrial centers where they can continue working and creating the environment for their family. I think Sean and I both experienced, you know, that migration. Yeah, I just find this is it's really interesting that the three of us here are talking about how we've kind of had to leave our communities in that sense, in a broader sense, in terms of getting more, I don't know, worldly is the right word to use, but to get those kind of perspective, perspectives. Perspectives. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I'm looking at us, we're all relatively around the same age, Yep. but we've all kind of had that similar path, right? You know, I taught English as a second language in South Korea after I graduated and then lived out West for a little bit. And Larice, you lived out West, but one thing you mentioned, Brad, which is really interesting is the fact that, um, those oat migrations, they're kind of losing their sense of identity. And I say this about, like, I use my mom's family as an example. She came from Canning family of 15, but they all moved away. And then you lose that loyalist um, connection to your community as well, too. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's a whole generation out there that it does have ties with Nova Scotia and, you know, the Black Lotus and the three-wave migration to, uh, Nova to Nova Scotia. Indeed. And, and you know, it's, it's important for our listeners to understand that and, and I, I'm sure they know this already, but Nova Scotia is home to the oldest indigenous black population in Canada, you know, and the work you folks are doing to shed light on that is imperative because it's, it's folks like you that keep the stories going. Right. And, and with that being said, a lot of our traditions as Africans is through word of mouth, you know, it's, it's through storytelling. Um, and I think we mentioned it earlier about the griot, you know, yes. the ancient African storyteller um, that kept. Uh, traditions alive, you know, through word of mouth. Mm -hmm. So kudos to you guys. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. Well, we're trying <laughs> to figure a, this all out still. Yeah, this <laughs> is know, important this to is, us, right? Is, like, and you know, like this is a, when we talk about the three waves of migration. You know, we, and Larissa and I've had this conversation. It's not just Nova Scotia; it's all the Atlantic provinces. We and I think we need to continue to reinforce that we are the oldest indigenous black population here in Canada. I think sometimes Absolutely. people forget that. And before the, the first black loyalist waves, as you know, I had this conversation in Yarmouth this week, the new England planters, 1760, yep. you know, we know that there were slaves in Lewisburg as well too. And mm -hmm. Don, what did they say? They said blacks have been in Nova Scotia for 400 years in That's one right. capacity or another. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. We I know what capacity that was, is. Uh, Oh uh, yeah. Well, you know what? I, my understanding that the first one was Matthew de Costa, who was like um, helped the English or French—I can't remember—navigate the New World, and the apparently he spoke yeah. he spoke French and and Mi'kmaq. I mean, that's the story, right? Mm -hmm. But to your to your point, yeah, the planters came up with um, with uh, early loyalists, you know, to to till the land and and to do that kind of stuff for um, for folks fleeing the states, leaving the states. So we're talking about your background growing up in the pier. 
how has this influenced your research? I know you're in the academic world, um, but you also have your own side hustle, so to speak. Um, (laughs) But how has that influenced your research to date? Oh, it's had an immense impact on my on my work. So, um, as you know, I, I I'm a diversity and inclusion and equity consultant. Um, mm-hmm. I've lived in this space for many years as a person of color, um, working in predominantly Eurocentric organizations, experiencing racism and and trying to tame my inner talk and how how to deal with it. Right, and instead of getting mad, I just got educated. Yeah, I mean, and it's something we all have to do because that's how you fight fire with fire is through is through education. It's not through getting mad or angry because that's what folks expect from us. Yep. You know what I'm saying? That's what they as soon as that happens, you're labeled. That's right. Right. It's like a female in the workplace. If she gets a little, um, you know, passionate um, and, and raises her voice, she's perceived as an angry woman or what's her problem? You know, it's like, oh, what? She yeah. can't have passion. You know what I'm trying to say? So it's, and it's the same with us. So back that passion up with facts. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that's kind of how my journey started was just self-development um, and just having a, a real interest in others and wanting to help others. Because when you know what it's like to feel marginalized, you want to do your best to, to help others with that. You know what I'm trying to say? And yes. it, it takes, takes self-work. And so that's kind of um, hey, Sean, kind of where I'm at. What what happened last week? What did Barb say about that? She's talking about in the education setting and like, you know, she says she's amongst friends with us, but as soon as she moves into that white world, the first thing she needs to do is justify why she's there and talk about how much education she has. You know, I'm always hesitant to talk about education because I think education defines one part of you. You know, the lived experience of you is very important as well, too. Uh But similar to what Barb said, is like about educating yourself on these issues so you can have these meaningful conversations when things pop up in the in the workplace or, you know, in your personal life and say, hey, no, actually, you know, I've been I'm indigenous to the land. I've been here for over 400 years. Right. We are not the minority. We are not a part of the minority that you discussed because we've been here forever. And that's one thing that Barb said, too, was that if you take African Nova Scotian or people of African descent and you remove them from that conversation of visible minority, we're not the minority. We're the majority. Uh So and this kind of led to one question I had for her about, you know, visible minorities and things, things of that nature. And I said, we should have a separate group. And she's like, Absolutely. <laughs> you know, we we are and our experience is different because we're indigenous to the land here. And you know what that and that's our experience, right? The trouble is, you know, whether you're from Zimbabwe, Barbados, Vancouver Island or or Tallahassee, you're still black. You know what I'm trying to say? And, yep. and we're perceived we're placed in that box regardless. regardless. Um, so, yes, we have our own individual lived experiences, but on the outside as we make our way through society unfortunately we're all grouped into herded into one box and and labeled as black how does that affect your mental health (laughs) as well i know i've encountered that myself um you know in terms of dealing with some of this stuff in the workplace you mentioned you know the female being the angry female or being the angry black guy but having that extra weight on yourself how does that affect you when you're trying to go about your day, day-to-day life? Excellent question. So ask me a couple of years ago, and I'd say it was like carrying around a knapsack full of rocks, right? Mm. It was heavy. It was, it was cumbersome. Um, and it was always on my mind. The shift took place when I realized 
um, when it became more educated, especially around emotional intelligence and, and how when a person acts a certain way, it's not necessarily a reflection of you. It's a reflection of them. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm trying mm-hmm. to say? Yep. And so when I realized that, you know, everybody's got sh- everybody's got something that they're going through. And yes, some people are very overt and opinionated in their approach. But I almost I almost approach that with grace right now. And I say, you know what, man, you know, for someone to feel like that, I wonder what, what's going on with them. Because if I took what everybody said personal and, and, and labeled myself as other people saw me, shit, man, it'd be a tough go. I almost treat everyone with grace, even like your hardcore uh, right wingers. It's like, let me learn more. And I know that sounds weird. I know that sounds weird, but it's like, well, let me learn more. You justify to me why you feel the way you do. It's, it's, it goes back to what you said. It goes back to what you said. Don't get mad. Just get educated. I'm sitting here listening to learn. And it, it, it doesn't, it makes perfect sense to me because, and I've said this before and you know, I use the analogy of listening to Fox News. Know thy enemy, man. Know thy enemy. Exactly. Yeah. That is, and you know, I think that's one of the things is that, you know, whether it's overt or systemic, it's the same. It's still racism, but yeah. you need to know it and acknowledge it and have those, and I said this before to Larice, those awkward conversations around it. That knapsack for me has been just released. So I think that's very powerful to use that analogy and, and knowing that yeah. you have to listen to everybody on this on this journey because it's, it's not a straight, straight line as everybody is. Right. And and here's the, here's the, the, the key thing is that people don't know what they don't know. They really don't know what they don't know. And if someone wants to listen to Fox news and come at me and think they're all educated, Hey, let's have a conversation. Cause we all know that media is biased, right? I'll tell you something to really pay attention to. It's watch how systemic racism is packaged, whether it's through the media, whether it's through laws and policies. It it lives and breathes in everything we do. Um, well, you said it. It's like headlines on newspapers, right? It's like, you know, the black guy, he's angry black. He's a thug. The uh, mm-hmm. If there's a white guy, it's, uh, you know, it's minimized to the point yeah, where, so, you know, he's a good guy. <laughs> so you're actually defining a term and, and it's called cultural messaging. Right. What messaging do folks receive from media, print, music of us? Right. And yeah. and if you really pay attention to how we're portrayed, man, you yo, you watch the first 48. Everyone see that show on A&E? Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. like cultural genocide, man. You know what I'm <laughs> that saying? It's true. Well, and so watch know, how it's packaged because it's it's right in our face. So just picking up on this theme about diversity, kind of your research. How important is it right now to have that conversation around diversity and inclusion? Oh, man, I think that's super important on many fronts. Um, I think, one, uh, we have to realize that the world is becoming more diverse, um, not only with globalization and people moving from country to country, but um, through birth rates. You know, there's a lot of um you know, mixed marriages and people are looking different, right? You know, it people are looking different. And so the conversation is starting to land on on more ears because our population is becoming more diverse. I always liken diversity as like the mix of individuals. You know, you have male, female, black, white, gay, straight, whatever the case may be. But inclusion's a bit different. Inclusion to me is like, how do you leverage those individuals to get the best out of them? Um, the best results, the best workplace interactions. And, you know, for most companies, it's the bottom line, right? And so as someone who's immersed in the the field, um, who, you know, I have two beautiful sisters, 
I have two beautiful daughters, a beautiful wife. You know, I have family members that, you know, are, are gay. I have friends that are gay. Um, and so for me, it's, it's really about my lens and how I view the world. Um, because I have children and I have people around me that, you know, I love and then I'm, I'm sensitive. There's a situation. I tend to look through the world through a different lens, right? Um, and I'll give you, a, I'll just give you a classic example. So normally when, when, when shit happens in the workplace and, 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 and things go sideways, it's normally, there's normally a high level of stress or anger or miscommunication or whatever. And so my classic story of how to get over myself is when I'm driving to work in the morning and I'm late because I was doing the kids hair or trying to get their breakfast or whatever. And I'm, I'm driving down the street and there's someone in front of me and they're going like half the speed limit. And I start slam, I hitting the steering wheel, like, come on, what's going on? Like, and I'm, I'm ready to like pass them on a, you know, on a single lane. Road rage. Um, and I'm like, road rage, man, road rage. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, excuse me, sorry, my language. I'm like, man, these old people can't drive. Like what the hell is going on with these old people? I'm losing my shit here. And then, and then I finally pass him and I realize it's a, it's a middle-aged man just taking his time. But in my head, my yeah. bias said old person. Yeah, you know yeah. what I'm trying to say? And so yeah. what I've learned is like, Brad, give yourself a little bit of grace here, buddy. Your biases are coming up to the surface. And yeah. the more you practice that, like understanding, recognizing your biases, the more you create that neural pathway of grace towards others. I think you need to repeat that because that's another critical point there. The more you understand and recognize your biases, the better your perspective is going to be. Because 100%. you give people the opportunity to be people right yeah. you, you understand that you're dealing with another human being not you know somebody that you're racially profiling or mm. not gender what you see profiling on TV. not what yes, you see right. on tv or not what music tells you not what the media tells you it's like they are a living being right and just because they look like this or they practice this religion or they eat this food doesn't mean they are what you think they are they absolutely are. yeah you know absolutely. so true it opens That's the door really to true. understanding now that we like, you know, covered all that and, you know, thank you for like everything you provided. It's been really enlightening. Uh, let's get back to like Whitney Parrott. So like we understand from like the discussion we had that, you know, there's been an outward migration mm -hmm. uh, and, and with that, the community would change. Right. So given those changes, what is Whitney Parrott like today? Well, <laughs> talking about bias i mean for me i love i love whitney pear man um because you know i feel like it's like a, it still has that blue collar backbone okay you know that blue collar backbone where you know everybody's uh working hard um you know partying hard when they get the chance but we have a long legacy of people mm -hmm. that came from from whitney pear we have uh valerie miller who was a judge um who sits on the supreme court of Canada, or sorry, the Tax Court of Canada. We had uh, Isaac Phils, who was a Canadian steel worker and the first black man to receive the Order of Canada. Uh, we just lost Clotilda Douglas Yakmanchuk, who was a Canadian nurse. Uh, she was the first African Canadian to graduate from the Nova Scotia Hospital School of Nursing and the first black president of the resident, sorry, res registered Nurses Association of Nova Scotia. And we even had, you know, Calvin Ruck, who was an anti-racism activist yeah, and a Calvin, member yeah. of the Senate of Canada. And he was born here in the pier, right? And his parents were uh, immigrants to Canada from Barbados. 
So we have a long lineage of greatness in the pier. And so for me, I'm standing on their shoulders, right? I I understand uh, where I come from. I understand the work that was done before me. So when I put myself out there in these public spaces and have these conversations, I have no fear. Um, the only it's okay to mess up. It's okay to be wrong. It's okay to do this, do that. But when I understand the work that was done before me and the work before them, right? Um, it just gives you that internal strength to, to, to be fearless. Right. That's not about perfection. It's about progression. That's right. Continue to build. Right. Yeah. John and I have had these conversations, you know, we, we actually have these conversations daily because what we want to do uh, is ensure that we're making, we're telling the story, you know, appropriately and giving it justice. And mm-hmm. sometimes we, we beat ourselves up, but like you said, we're not going to be able to do it perfectly. And mm-hmm. we just got to keep moving forward because, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to get to something that's really meaningful. That's right. And listen, there's people out there watching us who are saying, wow, like they had the fortitude or the gall or, or the guts to do this kind I of work. Right. That, man. Um, and that's that's big, man. Like eyes are eyes are on us, and, and you know, with that mindset, it's going to propel us to do great things. You talked about this earlier, Brad, the Universal Negro Improvement Association. What I I did a little research, and I I I was a little bit jaded in the sense that I thought it was just in Whitney Pierre, but you mentioned that that covered like New Waterford, Glace Bay as well too. So I will admit that I'm a little geographically ignorant to the Cape Breton landscape. So um, can you explain maybe a little bit about Glace Bay, Dominion, that area? Um, I know where New Waterford is because I played in the Coal Bowl there years ago. But um, so uh, just talking about that, the Universal Negro Improvement Association and what it's meant to those communities specifically. So Glace Bay is a town, um, it's actually was at one time the largest town in Nova Scotia, but it, it's about 25 minutes from Whitney Pier. And so just to give you context, you have Sydney, Glace Bay, New Waterford, they're all surrounding towns, coastal communities, and each one of them have their own history, I guess we'll call it. So we've talked a lot about the steel plant, um, in particular, how that uh, influenced uh, Whitney Pier. And so in Glace Bay, New Waterford, and Dominion, it wasn't steel production that was the economic engine. It was mining, um, specifically coal. Um, and to another, to a lesser extent, there was a large fishing um, contingent there as well because mm-hmm. they're, they're coastal communities. And so like the steel plant, uh, mining uh, drew a lot of people um, from other other parts of the world, um, notably from Caribbean countries and, 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 and rural Black um, communities. And so folks, folks settled uh, sporadically throughout these different areas. What makes Glace Bay um, stand out is one, it had a larger Black population, um, but two was uh, the, the, the presence um, of Marcus mm. Garvey in, the, in the, the, tw- the late 20s. And so, um, and I think I mentioned this, Garvey's whole purpose was, uh, he called it Zionism, is that, you know, folks should um, congregate and move back to Africa. Um, where we would be treated with respect and fair and, and, and create our own economy and, and, and so on and so forth. So that was his biggest thing was like Garveyism was like Zionism, returning to the motherland. And so he came to, um, he traveled all over, the, all over North America, but in Glace Bay, I believe it's the last UNA, UNIA hall in Canada. You know, the residual history still lives here. Um, hence the reason 
you know, I still enjoy living here. Um, we still have a, a group of professionals. We're called Service Providers Network. Um, we still, and, and that includes myself as a, working in post-secondary. We have teachers, principals, government employees, um, all black um, that congregates monthly to still um, do what we can do to support our communities. Um, and they're, they're from Glace Bay, New Waterford, Sydney, all over the place. It's all over. That's interesting. Yeah. And so blue collar towns with right. a lot of history. I guess nice. that highlights the, the sense of community and why it's still so strong, right? Mm -hmm. Keep it in mind, too, that these communities were definitely opposed to each other. You know how small towns are, right? Don't go there. Don't go over here. Um, but, you know, on a larger landscape, you know, if we're sitting in, in Ontario or Alberta. We're all yeah. drivers, and we all yeah. love home and we all have similar stories uh, of that hard blue collar uh, work ethic, um, you know, that continues today. That was it for it. me. Um, Larissa, well, you, yeah. Brad, thank you very much for like just showing up and showing out for, uh, you know, the community there in Whitney Pier. Uh, thank you for being a part of our journey. Right. Like, I think that's one of the foundational things uh, that we appreciate. And hopefully you can continue to be a part of that as we move forward. Hey, uh, very. Thanks for having me. Very impactful. Thanks a lot. Thanks for uh, joining the Loyalist Connections podcast established 1783. All right, gentlemen. And remember this. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Y'all take care. Thank you for listening to the Loyalist Connections podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and gained some new insights. This episode was produced by your hosts, Larice Gabriel Downey, and myself, Sean Smith, of the Loyalist Connections Creative Group. We want to send out a special thanks uh, to our community partners, the Black Cultural Center and the Black Loyalist Heritage Center and Society for their continued support. And shout out our alma mater, St. Mary's University, especially the St. Mary's University Goresbrook Research Institute Partnership for making resources available to us to complete this project. We encourage you to join us as we continue to host these meaningful conversations and uncover information on our communities and other important aspects of our history. In the meantime, don't forget to listen, like, follow, and share the Loyalist Connection podcast on all your favorite platforms. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at Loyalist Connection Podcast for updates and behind the scenes content. Also, for exclusive content, including access to unedited episodes, join the Loyalist Connections community on Patreon. And until the next episode, stay, stay connected. connected.